You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as... Kick-Ass News, Movie Therapy, and Therapist Uncensored. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. What follows is an excerpt from Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, published in 1897. Whitby, 9th of August. The sequel to The Strange Arrival of the Derelict in the Storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand with only a small amount of cargo, a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S.F. Billington of Seven, the Crescent, who this morning went abroad and formally took possessions of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbor dues, etc. Nothing is talked about here today except the strange coincidence. The officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with the existing regulations. As the matter is to be a nine days wonder, they are evidently determined that there shall be no cause of after complaint. A good deal of interest was abroad concerning the dog which landed when the ship struck, and more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found. It seems to have disappeared entirely from the town. It may be that it was frightened and made its way onto the moors, where it's still hiding in terror. There are some who look with dread on such a possibility, lest later it should in itself become a danger, for it is evidently a fierce brute. Early this morning, a large dog, a half-bred mastiff belonging to a coal merchant close to Tate Hill Pier, was found dead in the roadway opposite to its master's yard. It had been fighting and manifestly had had a savage opponent, for its throat was torn away and its belly was slit open as if with a savage claw. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. As you'll hear in our interview, Whitby is an English coastal town with a deep history. Fact, folklore, history, and fiction combine in different proportions throughout to paint a beautiful picture, but one with gothic shadows at every turn. From its ancient piers, high cliffs, gothic ruins, and storied history, it's no wonder that Bram Stoker used it as a key location in Dracula. And as we'll hear in this interview, the townspeople still struggle with tourists who want it all to be real. 
Monster Talk. How are you? Oh, yeah, sorry. We should probably talk about serious stuff. Yeah, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm really good. Uh, keeping busy, living over here in the UK for the last few years. Uh, how are you all doing? Fantastic. Well, we survived. Well, we yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on the new appointment. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really uh, exciting. It, it is. I really am. Um, it, it's definitely propelled me for when Jen and I move back to the States in the future to get my doctorate, to have that full official title, you know? Yeah. Mm, you can't yet. just make cool. up stuff like that, Dr. Lash. Cough. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, so tell me about your. Is this the appointment you want? Something you want to talk about on the like in on the record, or is that private stuff you don't want it to be out? Uh, in terms of what my career is, or in terms yeah, yeah, do you know where it's like she, she's congratulated you, but like I will have to cut that out if we're not going to explain it. So it's no big oh, deal. Oh yeah, sure. So oh yeah, I wasn't sure if we were doing like formalities or already just jumping right in. So well, um, I, a bit he, of both. Behind the scenes, here's what happens. Usually, we do a lot of little chit chat before the show starts, but then I clip it all out for the regular show, but I leave some of it in, tastefully edited uh, for the Patreon. So yeah, yeah, gotcha. It's like sounds it, good. It's like insider info about what's going on with Monster Talk guests, and it's uh, you mm-hmm. know super, super elite news, right? Stuff. Yeah. All the hot goss. Yeah. yeah. That's Blake's a, mistakes. And- hot goss is a <laughs> term I've just adapted uh, from a show I think I saw. What? <laughs> I like it. Keep up. I'll go with it. Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll start with, uh, hi, I'm Chris Klumovitz. I live in the UK. I teach for the University of Maryland Global Campus, UMGC. I'm an adjunct professor with the university. Uh, particularly in the humanities uh, field, and I am actually hosting a symposium coming up for the university, at least the European branch, on folklore and the ghost, or the concept of the ghost, um, or what is the ghost in wider cultural society. So I'm looking forward to doing that on, of all days, Friday, October the 13th. That's my birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) We should mention, Chris, that you have been on the show before. You spoke with us a couple of years ago now. Uh, We were talking about Balkan folklore. Indeed, yes. Um, I used to live in the Balkans, uh, southeastern Europe and eastern Europe for many, many years, uh, particularly Romania and Albania. But if you ask me of a Balkan country, I've probably been there or studied there. Um, I did part of my graduate studies there. And uh, I just worked there for a good almost three years in Albania. So, yes. And, and I, I, I just one more time for the record, I want to say thank you, because when we talked last, even though we had audio problems, one of the things that came through was this idea of, of a sort of forest grove spirit called the Zena, which helped mm-hmm. me unlock and better understand the whole story of Zena, the Abkhazian uh, slave woman. So uh, it's been really helpful in that research. So I appreciate that and we'll always will. Yeah, we talk and, about her a lot still. Yep. And you all taught me something because I had heard or come across the name before, but it was one of those like eh, throwaway type of stories like eh, interesting, um, especially come once in a while in the literature. But the deep dive that you all went into it, I was mm. like, wow, OK, yep. um, <laughs> I was really surprised. You gave me exactly like, the right breadcrumbs to take me down that trail. It was good. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like one of those parts of history that like I love history. I love teaching about it. I love learning about mm. it, researching. And then there's this like, oh. It's just is even dark for me. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, it's not a joyful or happy story, but I, I do appreciate better understanding what was going on there. And uh, I'm oh, one that needed to be told. Exactly. So it's, it's a very Precisely. unfortunate tale of racism and slavery and, and uh, cultural appropriation and all, some of mm-hmm. the negative sides of cryptozoology. But it's also the story of a woman who had a real life and survived and you know went through terrible things. But her family's still there. Her genes live on and her stories live on, even if some of them are wrapped up in folklore. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, we've brought you back. Well, Christy, you got in touch with us. You know, we, we were just chit-chatting, and uh, you suggested that uh, we should do an episode talking about Legends of Whitby. And mm-hmm. we're keen to get into that. But uh, I guess to begin with, where is Whitby, and, and why should we talk about Whitby? Great question. So I will say this. Uh, Whitby is probably, no, it definitely is my favorite place in all the UK. And I find myself going there a lot. I think since 2019, 
This is the first time I ever went there. I've been there about 15, maybe a little bit more times. And I go many, many times for a period, a good period of time. And um, I've gone to build up quite a few friends up there, uh, especially in the uh, British Folklore Society and in the folklorics and uh, folk music communities. So, and absolutely wonderful people. Um, and so I find myself going back and back. So where is Whitby per se? Well, fine folks, if you look up on maybe a Google map search, and type in Whitby, you'll see that it's in the United Kingdom, specifically in the Kingdom of England. And it's on the northeast coast. And it is an area in a county called North Yorkshire. Whitby is a market town that is right on the North Atlantic. And what's really cool, it has a geological anomaly to it to where if you were to sail directly north from Whitby itself, just keep going north, you would hit the Arctic Circle. Um, and so this is where a lot of your fishermen stories and various different naval stories take place are from Whitby and they go directly north. And there's a lot of fascinating, even folkloric stories connected with that. Whitby is also famous for uh, press ganging or Shanghaiing is the United States. Maybe we would call it um, of various different uh, folks onto different ships. And, and the term again in English, the English uh, press ganging. Yeah, I've we, never we, heard of that. I know of Shanghaiing, but yeah, never heard of that one. Yeah, we we fought a little war about it. Um, uh, in fact, <laughs> so yeah, we America didn't enjoy uh, the press ganging thing. So yeah. Oh no, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, so basically, Whitby uh, is unique in the sense of also geologically. There's only two places really in the UK where you can see the sun rise in the ocean and set in the ocean in the beginning of summer, so around the solstice time. That is Cromer, which has its fun famed claim to basically where uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle resurrected Sherlock Holmes to write Hounds of the Baskerville. And mm. Whitby, where you can see the, the sun rise in the east, set in the west, in the ocean. And it has this beautiful at night because we have the white nights here. And if, no, never, if you have never experienced that before, you will see how the sun um, is like, doesn't completely set. So it has this really pretty twilight, reddish twilight as you look over the sea um, from the harbor. And it's really pretty. Highly recommend it. Because then in the winter, it becomes northerly winds and you get those famous Whitby gales and heavy storms. Um, So I have personal experience with those, too. Wow. Oh, it's on the bucket list of places to visit. That's for sure. So, yes, I I, I saw the village in a um, Mark Gaddis uh, documentary where he was walking around interviewing people and so I, I was vaguely aware of it there and then we had a a previous guest chris woodard was on and she uh talked about whitby brief, just very briefly and so when you mm-hmm. sort of came out of the blue offering to talk to us about it, i was like that's a weird sort of synchronicity Timing was, yeah it's nice it's right good. yeah so, yeah coincidence that's funny yep. yeah so that's funny <laughs> so so well, it sounds like a really um colorful atmospheric place place. yeah it really is it's very unique and it's basically it has everything for everyone i guess the main claim to fame for better or worse depending on who you ask it is the literary dracula um whitby is there's a saying one of my friends up there he gives tours and his name's carl and he has a saying it goes this way there's the right way the wrong way and the whitby way um (laughs) Whitby for – it's basically been in existence for the Neolithic times in one form or another. It was – it sits on the river Esk. Um, and so Esk is a Danish name uh, or Engels Danish name. And so the harbor at one point, going back to Neolithic times, was a fine place to catch salmon. And then from there over time, it became a particularly religious site. So actually the modern-day Easter was basically decided – under the tutelage of St. Hilde or Hilda um, back in the 650s CE. And so there's so many different stories about her to where, as with a lot of folklore, you know, you get into where is fact and fiction, where does it begin and end? And so we have so many different unique stories about her. One of them is about how she brought in a, a poor man who joined into her order and he uh, was visited by angels, can learn how to sing, and you have these famous British poems written by St. Cademan. And so you get uh, stories about him there as well. 
Um, so because she is the patron saint of, if I remember right, like poetry and culture. Um, okay. So, but yeah, you get the Easter Synod is from there as well. A lot of people don't know Western Easter begins with Whitby. Wow. So did they mm, sing cool. by the river? They would have an esque yeah. choir. <laughs> no, I love the puns. You can ask my wife, uh, no matter where we are, she gets uh, her daily dose of cheese from me on my dad jokes and puns. So Whitby, the name, it, that wasn't the original name. The original name was Strenshall. And so basically it means a watchtower, the people of the watchtower. And so it goes back to when the later when you have your Celts and your Romans move in, um, they basically form it as a headland to be able to it, – it's a great place to build fortresses essentially. And so you have Roman works and towers being built and then your Celts and then, of course, your various Angles and then, of course, your Vikings arrive. And when I say Vikings, um, think of not necessarily the marauders coming in. These are your first early bands who come in and to like the area was now a Raven Scar, another really pretty town, uh, cool really village too. on the coast. Yeah. It is. I highly recommend a visit to Ravenscar just for the pretty coast over the North Sea. And so you folks basically settle. And what do the Vikings bring or Danish tribes bring, particularly uh, how to graze sheep and because they need for sails and clothes all for the wool and things. So the name Whitby comes from the various different Norse titles. We don't exactly know what the name Whitby, how it derives, but B is a surrounding sea. Thorpe or B in the UK name that is a Viking based name for a place. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. So the Abbey itself, it gets burned down by the Vikings, like Ivar de Boneless. Um, he's very infamous in the UK history and Irish history and, and even Norse history in general. But essentially, the Abbey starts to build from there. So you get a separate church, a parish church. Uh, and then you get the abbey itself, and as it builds up, it get, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So by your uh, medieval transitioning into the Renaissance times, it is basically the largest owner of land in the entire area of the Esk River. And so you have one side of Whitby is more where you have the uh, more gentry, and the more side towards the abbey is your poorer side of the community. But and they so don't have they a railroad of, track, so how do you know where you're supposed to be? That's what the river is for. Yeah. (laughs) Fun fact about that river: the oldest pier possibly thought in the world is located in Whitby. It's an old Roman pier, and you can still sit out there and sit on the docks and just sit by the dock of the bay and waste your time. Wow. So we do that a lot here um, in Georgia too. So precisely. (laughs) Well, we should really urge our listeners to. Just look up some of these places. Do a, a Google Images yeah. search. And I'll probably see them. I'll, I'll do a montage sort of shot for the for the episode art. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, even just the the sort of simple small photos they put in the Wikipedia article about this community are just gorgeous. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it is it's very pretty. Really, beautiful. I will. I will say this: so when folks drive in, you're going to go in through these hills and valleys and dales and the moors. This is where you get the whole North Yorkshire moors of. Stick to the paths. Beware the moors. You know, <laughs> you're uh, American uh, werewolf in London type of thing. So mm-hmm. it's it, you kind of get that when you're driving through, and you go, "Wow, okay, I can see this now." Um, mm-hmm. Those moors and paths are ancient, and so you'll cross through. And as you get close to Whitby or over the valleys and hills, you will see Whitby from top of those hills. Take a stop. Make sure you safe you know because traffic goes crazy Um, and you will see the whole entire town of north yorkshire coast and it's absolutely worth seeing so when you get over into the abbey itself you'll see it is a ruin well why is it a ruin well that's because of good old friend henry the eighth um (laughs) henry the eighth and the dissolution of the monasteries now a lot of people don't know is that the monasteries started to already come down before Henry VIII decided, hey, you know what? There's like a quarter of the wealth of this country is like locked up in these things. So you know what? Maybe let's start stripping them down. Um, it and actually to get goes back, back at the Catholic Church as well. In part, yeah. <laughs> but not absolutely. allowing him to marry Anne Boleyn. Yeah. Precisely. Exactly. And a lot of folks don't realize he wanted to have a son on the Holy Roman Emperor's throne. And instead, all he got was stillborn children and a daughter. And he's terrible. got to do an episode so, on him, speaking of monsters. Yeah. <laughs> really should. <laughs> it 
basically in the middle of all of this, a lot of folks don't realize is that the Abbey, the folks that were really happy to see the Abbey kind of go because it was not a positive relationship with the community. The abbots of Whitby uh, basically kind of controlled everything, and they basically looked down upon local little folk traditions, you know, particularly around like St. Stephen's Night or Midsummer Eve, and it was seen as uh, pagan. And so you have these festivals that were common, kind of somewhat Viking still to an extent, all the way up until the 13-1400s, like burning tar barrels, all this kind of stuff, bonfires. They were basically banned, and the Abbey went after folks, you know, trying to celebrate these traditions, and it became violent at times. So by the time of the dissolution um, and leading up to the 1520s, 30s, starting with Cardinal Wolsey and then, of course, with the Cromwells, uh, the folks were not exactly sad to see everyone kind of forced out. Now, the monks were given a little bit of money. The abbot was given some money, um, and it was basically – Shut it down, strip it of lead, strip the glass, and basically take everything you can from it. And it became this hulk where basically it became best used to take uh, stones from it, build homes, and use it for gravestones that are now in St. Mary's Churchyard. Ah. Uh, Yeah. So over time, and then, of course, the weather. If you look where it's located on the cliff, those North Yorkshire winds coming from those polar winds, they come in harsh. And if you're in those storms— they will bring down a place. So by the 1800s, the abbey itself was basically crumbled in and collapsed. Um, so between mismanagement, robbery, um, and the weather, it was a, a relic. Well, they'd stripped was, all the internal supports out and the materials, so there was just the walls with the windows? Is that or the uh, holes? Is that basically where they were at? I've seen a lot yeah. of – I'm asking because I've seen a lot of these – uh, these monasteries that were disillusioned or dissolved. And it, it, it's always mm-hmm. like, I didn't understand it historically for a long time. So I'd watch horror movies, uh, like some of the Corman movies use some of those, uh, you know, uh, crumbling abbeys. Uh, I think mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's Tomb of Ligia is where they do a lot of the shots there. And then they show up in some other horror movies. But it's not like they were burned down and never rebuilt, or it's more right. like they were just stripped and then yeah. whatever stuck around. Looted. Too much work Precisely. to take off the heart, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You strip the roof off first because that's lead, yeah, and that's a lot of money stripped. It, that's like bound up into that. You have to keep in mind, like when Notre Dame burned a few years ago, you're talking about I think it was like thirteen thousand trees made up Notre Dame. It was a forest in itself. And a lot of these abbeys are the same. So you strip the timber out, you strip the roof over, take out the glass, take whatever you can, and yeah, you just leave it as a hulk. And it was largely sort of intact up until the storms of the seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds. By that point, it became a beacon for sailors. It also became what a lot of folks may be be interested in learning more about is how the British essentially set up Australia. Um, I was going to say, Karen, you probably know a bit more about this. She's not that um, old. But a lot of (laughs) – Going back to high school history, sure. (laughs) Karen, you may have heard about (laughs) – Well, Karen, you may have heard about how uh, essentially you had a choice of if you were tried of basically – the average trial in the UK was about 18 minutes during the time of the Georgian era, Victorian era. You basically had a choice to be hanged or you could uh, be sent overseas to Australia to the penal Ooh, colony. And wow. so for a lot of folks as young as like eight, nine years old, the last thing they would see as they were leaving Whitby or the coast of Whitby, um, like Scarborough, et cetera, would be the Abbey. And that would be the last thing they'd see over the horizon. Aww. Wow. Yeah. And usually for very trivial crimes as well. I think the, the kind of running joke is for stealing a loaf of bread, but it was really just that kind of petty thing and uh, probably a lot of cases too where people were innocent oh yes um you could have things as petty as uh stealing a pig for mm-hmm. a death sentence yeah there's a mm-hmm. lot of those stories in the area where i live in east anglia of uh so many different crimes there's about 200 different penal crimes that basically could get you <laughs> sent to the gallows with a quick drop mm-hmm. and a sudden stop yeah very um, very sad so is born out of all these traditions, you find folks from all around the world sailing into Whitby. And so they bring traditions with them all over. And up until about the 1700s, Whitby was a major location for shipping. In fact, the crow's nest was designed at Whitby. It was a major place for whaling. In fact, if you want to go see where the old whaling pits are, you can. It's thankfully been kind of covered over because you don't want to be falling into an eight-foot 
pit, but if you go to the neighboring village of Ruswarp, you will see these like blue tinged rock walls. That is from the whales uh, that were basically where they cooked out the spermaceti uh, glens to create for the um, to basically get for propane that kind of stuff. Yeah, all the, all the whale uh, the, oil industry, right. the wax, all the things. Precisely, yeah. you can still see the remnants of that. So Whitby became famous for this. Um, Among so many other things. <laughs> it, indeed. Also, the first case, I just remembered, the first case of leprosy in England was noted in Whitby. Yes. Fun little things like this. Dubious honor. <laughs> in, indeed. Um, and Whitby's full of these. So over time, the harbor is better formed to deal with the, the storms. That's why if you look at it, it looks like a whale bone type of face. These are quite mm-hmm. common along the North uh, Sea coast of the UK, and it's basically to allow for ships to come in and out, but not to have these devastating storms rush into the harbor and uh, destroy the harbor, which was quite infamous. For this so happening. they have those are like breakwaters, precisely. Okay, yeah. and you just happen to put the lighthouse <laughs> at the end, which uh, the mm-hmm. lighthouses are claimed to be haunted. I've been up one. Of course, um, of course. Can't say I've ever experienced anything but i always hear all these great stories that's the thing i always hear these great stories of you'll hear this in the night or hear this in the day you'll hear noise i'm like well i'm ready i've got my camera out i've got my video my (laughs) phone out let's do this and i'm always disappointed so i'm always trying are they still Um, uh are they still lit are they active electrical automated that sort of thing are they just there's remnants now Oh, no, no, they're, they're still active. Okay, uh, cool. It's all automated now, and yeah. they still have the foghorns. So nice. it does get foggy, and that's a beautiful thing about Whitby. If you happen to be oh, there yeah. during when the fog is rolling in, mm-hmm. oh, man, that's just beautiful. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. In the Navy, I had an experience one night where, where we were on a small boat. I was on a boat crew, like a 27-foot boat, and it's not, not very large. But we had a big fog bank roll in, and we could see it off in the distance. And it was like something out of a horror. It was like something out of the fog, the John Carpenter movie, where you just see a wall of white approaching, you know. It, mm-hmm. And it's like, is it terrifying? Is, it ate up the <laughs> oh, docks, yeah. and it just kept coming closer and closer. And eventually, we could not see the front of the boat from the back of the boat and it was only 27 mm. feet. It's like, it was just astonishing how thick it could mm-hmm. be. And I, I always thought in the movies, you know, they were, they were overdoing the fog. They're a little, no, maybe not. Maybe not. Sometimes <laughs> these things can be so <laughs> dramatic. So, and you, you oh, yeah. and they trick you too. Like with the audio changes, everything feels different when you're in that kind of a deep fog, especially at night. Uh, it just, things That's sound different. Creepy. So I, I love it. I love it. So. <laughs> oh yeah, well, Chris. We wanted to ask you too about uh, the other guest that we had uh, named Chris, Chris Woodard, that uh, Blake mentioned earlier. When she came on the show, she was talking about the jet industry mm-hmm. uh, in the community and how jet was used for uh, Victorian mourning jewelry. And so we're wondering if that industry is still alive today. Is it still being produced there today? It still is, and you can actually find Whitby Jet. I actually have a little bit with me right here um you can find along the beaches same thing with the cool. ammonites 
that's uh, so there's a tradition, kind of like a St. Patrick tradition with St. Hild, where she basically turned the snakes uh, of Whitby into, you know, fossilized, like formed. And so yeah. it basically at the same time as the Whitby jet industry was growing, you had a uh, growth in selling ammonites as St. Hilda's snakes, you know, mm. and, you know, basically She's like a, a, a reverse Gorgon. Office. She's like turning the snakes into stone. That's weird. But <laughs> It is. It's awesome. So, but yeah, the Whitby jet is a still a big thing. Um, there's a whole entire museum dedicated to it. You can still buy jets. Oh, cool. um, it's so beautiful. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's, it's so mm-hmm. shiny and black and it's just, uh, yeah. Very so. polished. Yeah. So is it's it, cold. Yeah. I assume it's super light. Cold tends to be super light. So, I, but I, I know it, it is. Okay. Neat. Oh yeah. I've got a little piece in my hand right now. It, it's, it's very, it, it's beautiful. When you polish it down, it's like that scrying mirror type of like, uh, smooth mm. black type of screen Neat. so it's, it's really pretty um yeah so basically there's a ton of shops and whitby it's basically that's part of when i talk to the locals you know it's something that they talk about is i guess you get that tourism it becomes that fan of tourism that dark tourism of you know it brings folks in and has a double-edged sword of it changes the culture in the town, but at the same time, the community needs the tourism. And tourism has been a big thing in Whitby, particularly since the Victorian times when the trains came in. So um, if it wasn't for the train, the community was going to fall apart. So right. um, and it's the same thing today. So the only thing I say to folks, if you're going to go to Whitby, please just be respectful um, and uh, don't go asking everybody, so where is Dracula buried? because yeah. <laughs> that drives the locals crazy you'd be surprised it's an actual thing really um, yes i i can tell you i've had a personal experience because when i first went there and i was interested in the actual whitby folklore you know i went up to with the local museum and i asked like what stories folklore, you know different folklore legends do you have could i look into you know your archives and they're looking mm-hmm. at me like dracula wasn't from here yeah. Wait, I was like, wait, hold on. Wait, I'm not asking about Dracula. I can tell you plenty about Dracula. I've seen plenty of his stuff um, <laughs> in his castles. I'm like, I've been to his birth town. I'm like, that's not what I'm worried about. But yeah. I guess if you're interested, I can tell you some of these stories now. Um, well, well, I am. Yeah, I, do, I, I did want to sort of set a context. Like, so you've got, uh, let's see, authentic pre Stoker local folklore. But then. Mm-hmm. Bram Stoker spends time in Whitby, if I understand correctly, and Correct. sort of uh, falls in love with the look and vibe of the Abbey ruins. It's been a while since I've read Dracula. Does Dracula really come ashore in Whitby, or does he come ashore at a place that's based on Whitby? No, no, he comes to shore at Whitby. Why is it so far north? What? I don't remember... <laughs> <laughs> I, in, in the book, I just thought everything was near London and when I was reading it. And I just realized this, this is like halfway up the, the, the country. Like it's it's up the island. It's like really far up towards the narrowing. Um, so, I mean, how many – I mean, that seems like a long way. So to give you some a geographical idea, so where I'm located, I'm towards the Cambridge area. And that is three-and-a-half-hour drive north to Whitby passing through York because York is about three hours, another half hour to Whitby's. Yeah, it's about three and a half hours from me to London. It's about an hour traffic makes it way worse. Oh, so, so it's not as yeah, far. I'm just looking at too zoomed in of a map to give you an idea of the UK size. You can fit the whole entire UK, including Northern Ireland into the state of Oregon. So like <laughs> Jen and I, we drove from where we are down in the Cambridge area, all the way up to the very North of the UK in the Dunnethead Orkney area. That was a 12 hour drive. Um, for in the UK, that's a lot of driving. For back home, mm-hmm. that's yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> I mean, that Those won't get lines. that will barely get you into Texas, you know. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> so Carfax Abbey is based off of other locations towards the London on the Thames. Uh, Whitby Abbey is the actual place. So in the, towards the beginning of the book, I think it's chapters five, six. Uh, essentially, you have Mina and her party are all based in Whitby, and it's based off of a location that he really loved, which was the Crescent. So if you look at it, it is a half Crescent because basically in the mid-1800s, they ran out of money trying to build it to look like London or Bath. 
And so essentially he, uh, Bram Stoker, moves in in July of 1890 to the area because he's trying to get away because he's dealing with a very um, cantankerous and overburdening boss down in London and in their shows up in Edinburgh. So he comes down to Whitby with his wife and he starts walking around, learning more about the community, stops in the old uh, sailors' huts and houses and the old jet factories and try to just learn more about the place, taking down the dialect. The dialect is unique. You know, you take, for example, the word flat, an apartment in the, in the United States, you call them flats mm-hmm. in the UK. In North Yorkshire, it's pronounced as fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, a bat in some of the old North, York, North Yorkshire dialect is still from the Norse, fleetermoose, like a bat, fleetermoose. They still will say oh, wow. that. Okay. Yeah. So it depends on where you are in the valleys. You'll hear these words. So he started writing these words down and listening to the local sailors and started actually using some of their actual names um, in the book. But yes, Whitby Abbey, he included because it's just so imposing. And then he started including a story of like a, a woman imprisoned as a nun because there's these infamous stories that are um, overhyped during the dissolution of um, just ter- terrible things occurring, uh, licentiousness going on in the abbeys, and he based it off of that. And then he started mixing other stories in with this, stories of the bar guest or the black shuck or the padfoot, maybe known as the church grim, Gabriel's hounds, i.e. the big black you know, dogs, you know, mm-hmm. and he started getting to like demon dogs. And he based it off of a stories from in the 1700s in Whitby. It was common to use the 199 steps in the donkey cart to take up the particularly the gentry up to the final resting place near the abbey at St. Mary's, and they would be followed at night with torches by horseback on the, in a hearse, and it would be a procession up. And same thing with sailors. The poor didn't exactly have that uh, same type of um, you know, respect at the end of their lives, the good death. Um, but you'll find by the Victorian times, those sentiments change from burials at night become burials by the morning. So... That story connects, and he uses the tradition of a ship um, that runs across into Whitby, and this great black hound races up the steps, and you know it draws out. Um, is it Lucy? Yeah, it's Lucy Westernra uh, up to the Abbey steps, up the 199 steps, which there are. It's actually 199 steps. Um, on a side note about the steps, which makes them unique, is is that they're very old. And they were predominantly used for funerals. So you'll find these large areas where you stop and you'll find these benches and folks just sit on the benches. What they don't know is that they were used for the coffins to rest the coffins because you're walking up 199 steps. Men carried men as pallbearers. Women carried women as pallbearers up the steps. And if you go to the gates of the various different churches there, they're called like gates. A death gate. It's from Old Norse. Like, like in fact, it would look oh, like lich wow. for gamers, right? But yeah, or lick, or yeah, yeah. Right. There's actually a very famous song, um, and there's an old tradition up there called the Like Wake Dirge, and it's a really, really pretty song. At least in my opinion, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and it, depending on how you sing it, it could be basically a mocking way of saying, "Oh, this person was terrible in life, so we're going to mock them in death," or it would basically as a way of saying, hey, we're going to sing this to you, and it's a guide to getting you out of purgatory because the tradition was if you gave folks you know, shoes um, in life and you were kind, you would be able to make your way to heaven from purgatory. And the purgatory in the North Yorkshire world uh, was basically the moors, the thorns. And if you were terrible, well, you have to walk through these thorns and everything, um, and good luck because you're going to hell. So – if you look up the song, uh, I say to folks, listen to it because it's really, really pretty and you can still hear it once in a while played. Um, yeah. I've heard it okay. while I'm up there. You're just talking about the Yorkshire accent. This makes me think, I don't know if you guys know of the Monty Python sketch with the four Yorkshire men. And they're all sitting around trying to outdo each other with this. Oh, we used to dream of having a sketch like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. But listen to that if you want to hear some good Yorkshire accents. Will you try and tell that to the young people of today? (laughs) Will they believe you? So I guess I should go back with the story of 
the uh, the ship, Demeter. They just had the new the new Voyage of the Demeter movie, which I'm like, if you've read the book, which I have, despite my not remembering where Whitby is, I have read. <laughs> Typical American. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, didn't bother to look at a map when I read it, and obviously, everywhere's London. Yeah, it's like when I saw they're making a Voyage <laughs> of the Demeter, I was like, what? Uh, that's going to be a really dark story because we know how it ends. On, on the, but I also <laughs> thought it was kind of funny because, you know, in America, we don't use meters. We use feet. So I thought if you translate it, it would be the voyage of defeat, which is actually apt from a, a plot perspective. That's awesome. I never even thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, the original ship was the Dimitri. And so in 1885 at the... The cliff's edge, so the east cliff's edge, you had the a ship coming out of what is now Estonia, then the Russian Empire, the city, the border city of Narva. Um, and it sailed in and it ran across in the great storm, as again, I keep bringing up, Whitby has a lot of these. And it ran across in 1885. So Stoker, he hears about the story of this ship that rolls on. And if you look up online, you can see the pictures of it um, yeah, when it hit the beach in the headlands. And so he based it around this, except that instead of coming from what is now Estonia, Russian borderland, it arrives from what it now is Bulgaria, Romania area and brings in the story, which the Dracula story itself doesn't even take place really officially in Romania itself. So, again, he takes loose legends here up in North Yorkshire, stories from his childhood, which if you haven't seen his two homes in Dublin, I highly recommend uh, it's well worth a stop to go and look at. And he heard a lot of stories up in, across the UK, particularly in Scotland. And he brought them, merges them all together, mixes them all together. And while he's at the library in August of 1890, he goes uh, in Whitby, comes across a, some diplomatic cables going back to the, uh, about the 1820s, 1830s, back when Romania was still part of the Ottoman Empire from British mm-hmm. diplomatic uh, services. And he's like, oh, well, he originally wanted the name Dracula, uh, Count Vampire or Vampire, <laughs> which doesn't work. I'm sorry. This is a terrible name. And keep in mind, this is not too long after stories of like Carmilla. This is not too long after. And Barney. Um, Polidori. Right. Yep. Exactly. And, yep. Barney the Vampire, Polidori, basing it off of um, Byron. There oh, Byron. They had the Byron oh, Ghost yeah. Story Night. Yeah. Yeah. It's a story I've heard mistold for most of my life. It was a dark and stormy night on the shores of Lake Geneva, the, the one in Switzerland, not Wisconsin. Four companions in a rented house decide to tell each other ghost stories, and famously, they'll give birth to the vampire novel and the story of Frankenstein from one lightning-lit evening of creativity. But, of course, that's not what happened, and the story's much more complicated. Mary writes her first draft of the novel Frankenstein, and John Polidori writes with Byron on what becomes the first vampire novel. But this stuff takes years. The authorship of the vampire novel is quite muddled. There's love triangles, intrigue, scandals, family secrets. It's quite a ride. Again, it's too much to squeeze into this quick insert, but I think we'll return to this famous literary love shack and see if we can unpack the true history at some future time. Byron's was like a fragment. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, he gave up. He was like, I'm done. Not even <laughs> like I'm one page in. I'm done with this. Yeah. Um, so it led to Mary Shelley, one of my heroes, uh, to uh, make an actual good story out of it all. But I'll be honest with you. I personally think stories like Carmilla um, are, are way better than Dracula. I'll just I'll be up front. Um, I, maybe. I- I really, I, I, I know we're going to really thrill the audience when we talk about our opinion. We'll, we'll just Dracula is so pass. But seriously, like it's really good up until like the last third just drags until you get to the exciting conclusion. It's like there's that whole long mm-hmm. section. Anyway, it, it really does. Yeah. So, um, and so this ship runs aground, and then from there, uh, the black dog, the bar guest, runs up, and it's Dracula. And he runs up the 199 steps, tacking folks along the way, and, you know, drawing Lucy out onto uh, the Abbey. And so that is basically the backdrop until we get to London. So, but yes, uh, he took those stories largely from Whitby and just wrote them down. And he, in fact, the name Harker was one of the town folks he met while he was in Whitby. Again, a lot of them he didn't ask to use their names. He just took down the names, and then later on it was 
eh, no big deal. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> it was like a real gamble because I don't think he thought it was going to be as big as it turned out. In the book, it's a lot of the things that are talked about, like in later in vampire lore, it is a mixture of that German story because originally he was going to base um, Dracula Count Vampire as a Austrian story based off of a uh, Austro-Hungarian noblewoman. And if you read the there's an actual like introductory story that was cut out and it goes into all this that he chopped out of the story. So, but yeah, he kind of put Whitby on the map for this, um, particularly over the next few decades. And so by the 1980s and onward, a lot of folks start going to Whitby, um, because they hear about Dracula and they want to know more about Dracula. Um, and so I think also when the iron curtain fell, you started seeing then this even bigger pool, because, you know, you have folks like, oh, OK, we're from Romania. That's where the actual Dracula is from. We can learn about vampires. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go to Dracula, look for Dracula in Romania, just lower expectations, folks. It's all very interesting, <laughs> but don't picture a uh, seven foot tall, monstrous creature, you know, watching out for you. <laughs> That's not in Romania. Um, but. Yeah, so that is basically the backstory of Dracula there. And so Dracula has become a very love-hate relationship in Whitby. Right, uh, yeah, I can see that. The Abbey, it draws folks to the Abbey, and at the same time, folks are like, please stop asking us about Dracula. Sick of hearing about it. <laughs> Chris mentioned that there was sort of a goth festival. Like, is that riding on the coattails of Dracula, or is it trying to create a new sort of dark tourism experience that's adjacent but not directly descended from Dracula? What's going on with that? It's kind of a mixture of both. That's actually a really question. I've been trying to figure that out. Um, I love the goth festivals. The original one starts back in 1994, and it starts all at the Little Angel Pub, which if you go, I highly recommend, especially if you love rock and metal music. Um, That's one of my hangouts. So I highly recommend a visit. And it starts from there, and it builds up. Funny enough, it basically you have the creators kind of start having a fallout over time, and there's two separate goth weekends at times. So you have one in the spring and one towards Halloween. Same thing, like there's a steampunk weekend, there's a Viking weekend, there's a pirate weekend, and all these different festivals cool. built off of that. Um, so, but it's a good question of the chicken and egg. Whitby is just such a unique location. It's drawn folks from all over for centuries that it's just so open to all these different stories. Um, and so Dracula definitely fed into that though. And mm-hmm. the Gothic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And as someone who is, you know, a goth, um, I love going for that, but I, I'm fascinated in like how folks have changed over time with it. Um, I, the first time I went there, it was, a, I remember it being much smaller and then it built up after the pandemic. It's gone bigger. The Halloween time is a much, much busier version than the spring version. Um, so what's also okay. cool is that they, some parts that will embrace Dracula, like up at the Abbey itself, they put on a live performance of Dracula around each Halloween. Wow. And it's really, really cool to see. Um, <laughs> I actually got to hang out with the cast, you know, when I got to see it. And it was like, wow, this is, this is really awesome um, to go see <laughs> Dracula actually at the Abbey itself. Is, is it, is it a um, new production or is it based on the original play? Or It's more based, yeah, towards the play. And it, it's like, cut up into the main portions of the book and the play and chopped up. It's done in about like an hour, hour and a half show. I'll I'll say, I'm going to say something that I think uh, is a little bit blasphemous, which is that the original Dracula motion picture from Universal is super dull because it's based on a play. It feels like a play. And then so when you get like more dynamic productions like the hammer, even though they uh, break away from the, you know, novels plot lines, they're way more exciting and colorful and energetic. And uh, I don't, I don't know. I think I like the hammer versions better. Oh, I don't disagree. Sir yeah. Christopher Lee. And of course, Bella Lugosi, they are the classics. I, I just, it's hard to see anyone else, but them as uh, the count. Yeah. So well, well, Bela, especially stepped I, onto our final question. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I guess we did. <laughs> yeah. But let's, let's, yeah. before we jump to that though, I, I, we, you, you you promised us, I think, some lore that predates Dracula. We should get some of that in here. Absolutely. Um, I'll go through some of them real quick. There is 
Whitby itself and the surrounding Whitby coastline is full of stories. In Whitby itself, uh, you have stories of a headless horseman, drowned sailors, uh, the seal people like the Selkies. Ooh. There's a famous story of a young woman who um, her hair, she would put a little bit of the whale oil in her hair and comb her hair out regularly. And so she went down to the local baker's where her hair got caught into the oven and her she was set on fire um, and Ooh. ran through the streets. And it said you can see her ghost and you smell her as well. Um, the the Whitby Abbey itself was bombed by the Germans during World War One. And so some of the town was actually bombed. Um, and so you hear these stories of like the bombings that occurred there. Um I think what else in terms of ghosts basically every corner you go you'll hear a story like at the lighthouse it being haunted um there's a very apocryphal story that queen victoria ran into the ghost in the lighthouse and it scared her i've never found any good evidence of this but it makes for a good story and it's a queen victoria story so why not um there's also connections and stories of this is where the endeavor sailed out of which was captain cook's ship um, on his fateful journey around the world and or infamous journey, depending on how you look mm-hmm. at it. Um, there's a lot of stories of the Abbey uh, supposedly having ghosts. I can't say I've ever experienced anything or saw anything with that, but there's a Dracula talks about like the Marmion, the walled up woman in the walls or St. Hilda's ghost oh, is there. There's mm-hmm. there's claims Basically, it feels like a place where everywhere you walk, if there was to be a ghost, this would be the place to find it. It's certain, right. it's nothing, and, and, which definitely. makes sense, I think, is so much of gothic, the, the aesthetic, is all about look and feel. Even if it's only cosmetic, that flirtation with mm-hmm. the past as a magical place, you know, so. Okay, keep in mind, like, Lewis Carroll was drawn here, Charles Dickens was drawn to Whitby, and so you'll find a lot of them writing about this as well in these stories they pick up. Uh. So I think amazing. probably is there a I assume there's do they have a ghost uh, commerce business with ghost tours and that sort of stuff? Oh yes, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, it's like I'm trying to think of a place in England that wouldn't. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have to. It's Wait, like your de facto. He definitely does. There's you know. two competing ghost tours. I'm friends with one of the uh, the gentlemen who uh, runs one of the tours, and yes, there's two competing ghost tours. I've been on both and a Dracula tour. Um, and I've off the books done my own version when I've had I've met uh, tourists looking and asking and I'll hear them and I'm like, here, let me show you around. I've done my own off the beat tours, you know, unofficial that tours cool. when it would be. Um, or to go on one of your tours someday. Oh, please do. I would say I'll leave it with maybe. Three other quick stories about Whitby and the surrounding area. So one, of course, is like I said, there's the famous story of there's a a phantom carriage that goes up the 199 steps in the donkey path, which was for the carts. And and it's said to be like the phantom carriage that leads sailors uh, from the ocean to their final resting graves because a lot of them did not return home. Right. And again, I think a lot of that based off the research I've done and been able to come across, it feels like this was from the – the Georgian era burials and how they were done at night. And I think those traditions just kind of merged into the society around and left as a good explanation. Um, another great story is less a ghost story, but more of a folk custom tradition. It is of young virgin women and women who never got married. And when they would die, especially because well, death was very common uh, during this time, especially at young ages, you would have young women who the pieces of their cloths from the dress were cut from their dress and placed on poles, and they would be used in a procession to carry the coffin to the grave at the churchyard. And so you can go to a church called Old St. Stephen's. Uh, if you're going to go there, please go with respect because the place is very old um, and it's in need of a lot of care. But you can see in one of the small back rooms a old – uh, virgin's cloth of like this pole with these cloths hanging off of it. Maiden's like cloths. Kind of like that. And they yeah. would also place like paper gloves. It was to show that they're being married to Christ. Oh. And it's an old, old tradition. It's really fascinating um, mm-hmm. to see these. They're very rare. And yeah, it's in Robin Hood's Bay. 
And if you go to Robin Hood's Bay, yes, the name Robin Hood, it's supposedly based off a legend of Robin Hood shot an arrow and it landed there and he was able to escape from the sheriff Nottingham and escape there. If you're going to visit, please park at the top of the hill. Do not drive into Robin Hood's Bay. It is a scary drive into <laughs> a very large slope going into the village. Um, but it, it is said to basically – if you ask the locals because they do a Victorian festival there, they'll say pretty much every building has some type of ghost story. And if you go to the mm. beach, you will see these tunnels. You can actually walk into the tunnels where they would smuggle to try and get around the hovering act. Um, basically to allow uh, – up until the 1980s, Robin Hood's Bay was a smuggling den of various different products. So wow. yeah, and there's said to be ghosts in every corner, especially in the pubs. Um, I'll just leave it to – maybe it's just the spirits. So there are other kind of spirits there. Yeah. Uh, well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show again to talk about yet another fascinating – subject in a, such a interesting place it seems like there's truly something for everyone there and it's a, a town that's just very rich in folklore and history and uh, i hope to visit someday and blake as well i'm sure you feel the same way i would be visiting right now if i had the money i don't <laughs> yeah 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 but uh chris because we had you on before and you told us your favorite monster we wanted to figure out a different kind of question along those same lines so we came up with the idea of asking you, what's your favorite Dracula movie? That's, like I said, anything Christopher Lee, Bela Lugosi, the classics. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I, we've had a little uh, um, renaissance for Dracula. I think we had the uh, the British uh, TV miniseries, and then we had the... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was okay. The, the Renfield movie. I liked it. I liked it. Voyage of the Demeter. There's a lot of Dracula going on. So I enjoyed Renfield. There actually is another movie coming out um, bit called El Conde. I was just reading about it when I was visiting Sweden recently. And it's basically a Count Dracula goes to Chile in the 1960s and he becomes uh, the dictator, uh, Pinochet. And wow. how? Yeah. And it's a Chilean Dracula story. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are so many interesting sort of uh, uh, stories of vampiric creatures from uh, South America. Uh, You know, mm -hmm. some of them really interesting ones where they steal fat instead of blood. I like that a lot. It's like the. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like it still comes down to the essence. Like when you're in a low caloric, low nutrition ecosystem, you know, having your fat stolen is basically a a slow death sentence. So, yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of eating, when you go to Whitby, please, please get fish and chips. Oh, I would definitely do that. And stop by one of my favorite little areas. There's a little chocolatier um, near the harbor entrance. He makes uh, chocolate coffins and chocolate bats. (laughs) How cool. And there no calories. That's amazing. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) He uses ghost sugar. Uh, that is fantastic. You've painted a beautiful picture of this lovely, historically significant community. And for that, we thank yeah, you. You certainly <laughs> have. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. And of course, we'll keep in touch. And you're always uh, researching something interesting. So we'll definitely have to have you back on again in future. Thank you. It's been a real honor. Um, I, I love the show. Oh, and thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with researcher and author Christopher Klimovitz talking about the legends and folklore of Whitby, England. Check out our show notes for more links about the history and tourism around this picturesque and historically interesting seaside village. From festivals to ghost walks to the literary anchors that keep Whitby forever in the realm of the Gothic, There's much to see and consider, and I can tell you that Karen and I really wish we could go and visit ourselves. If you're more able than we are, please share your experiences. Our Facebook and Patreon pages let you get in touch with other Monster Talk listeners who'd likely enjoy hearing about your own adventures. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show. 
all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. If you're enjoying the show, won't you take a moment to give us a review on the podcast platform of your choice? It only takes a couple of minutes, but it might be the words that introduce a new listener to our humble efforts at promoting critical thinking and science literacy. Thanks. been a monster house presentation with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.